How's everyone doing? Good. Before we get in the word, a few announcements. One, our college group is uh, headed back from their retreat today. About 20 of them uh, headed out on Thursday. Apparently, they must all sit over here because it's really top heavy <laughs> over there. So pray they have a, a, a good, a safe trip back and the things that they learned this weekend that God would continue to bear much fruit from that. Also, our ladies' Bible study just kicked off uh, Tuesday nights. Uh, that's right, 7 p.m. So it's not too late to jump in on that. You can talk to uh, Margaret Porch and she can get you the info. But it's 7 p.m. Uh, here on Tuesdays. And then finally, less than three weeks away is our fall party. So um, we're partnering with SCCHE to, uh, to have a great time. We're going to have tons of different activities and food and all sorts of, of stuff. So we can still use some help on a few things. So if you want to help with that, uh, please talk to me or talk to Justice, and we will get you plugged in for that. Sound good? All right. Let's get into the Word. Turn to Second Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. It says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Let's pray. Father, we come before your throne right now and we beseech you of many different requests that we have. One, we thank you for our college students and pray that their hearts would be fast attached to you, that they would uh, seek you um, at such an early age, God that you would lead and guide them into the jobs that you want them to have, the careers that you want them to have, the impact that you want them to have, and that they would be faithful. Lord, thanks for um, our smaller ones that you've blessed this church with, and we pray for our uh, Sunday school teachers, that you would um, give them wisdom and knowledge to instruct our kids uh, at an age-appropriate level in the things of your word. Save them, God. Uh, Save them. Save them at an early age, Lord. Grab fast their hearts. And Lord, help us to uh, be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. We want to be people that ourselves are fast attached to you. And that we cling to your word, that we are faithful to you and to your word, Lord. I pray, God, that you would um, speak through the pulpits today in America across this nation, across this world, and truth would be preached uh, 100%. That lives would be changed, that souls would be saved, that you would keep doing your work. We continue to lift up the church in Afghanistan. Be with our brothers and sisters there. These words in Second Thessalonians about persecutions and afflictions ring quite true for them. So be with them, God, and let them be steadfast and continue in faith in the persecutions and afflictions that they are enduring. And steady us, God, for such a time should it come. Steady us, Lord, to persevere. And now, Spirit, we ask that you would 
uh, speak through your word, speak through me, and uh, let only truth be spoken. We thank you, Lord, that you are so good. We thank you uh, for your son, Jesus. It is in him, in him alone, that we have life. So continue to be here with us now, we ask, with the authority you give us in Jesus. Amen. All right, when we come to the scriptures, we are given truths over and over and over and over and over again throughout the scriptures, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Now, what kind of truths are these? Because when you talk about truths, there's two types of truths. There's objective truths, and what's the other type? Subjective truths. So one of the authors that I read, I grabbed this example from him because I thought it was just good and straightforward. If you say a chocolate ice cream is the best dessert on the planet, you as the subject is deciding this based on preferences. Okay, that's subjective truth. It's the subject that's making the decision. On the other hand, if you said uh, isoniazid is the cure for tuberculosis, well, it turns out it is. It's not grounded in your opinion as the subject. It's grounded in the object. Objective truth. In this case, the object is the isoniazid. So there's two kinds of truth. And when we talk about truth, there's subjective truth claims and there is objective truth claims. Here's the thing. We're, we're, when we talk about Christianity and the truths of it, we're saying Christianity isn't subjectively true. We're saying it's objectively true. Okay, so it's not subjectively true in the idea that, oh, it's be, because you like it, or because it works, or because you prefer it, or you had some experience. No, but rather it's objectively true based on the evidence. Aside from your personal opinion, it's based on the evidence that demonstrates it's true. If the evidence doesn't support it, guess what? You shouldn't believe it, right? So subjective truth, now, when, when I was growing up, we didn't call it subjective truth. Guess what we called it? Your opinion. <laughs> That's just your opinion, right? And then subjective truth came along. Part of what happens with this idea with subjective truth is it leads into... Uh, what we call the prosperity gospel. And there's actually the prosperity gospel uh, 1.0, but now, guess what? There's the prosperity gospel 2.0. Um, sadly, parts of Christianity have made Christianity more about the subjective than the objective. Now, think about the original prosperity gospel, which is false. I know you all know that, but just want to make sure that's out there. You know, the idea is that you get out of debt, get rid of all your sickness and ailments, give you riches, and, and it still exists. It exists in, in churches, for sure, um, even around us, sadly. But that's the idea. Get you out of debt, uh, rid you of all your sickness and ailments. Actually, I was having lunch with my mom yesterday, and she was sharing about, uh, with me about her friend um, who had had cancer. And the pastor told her, uh, this lady who had cancer, that she wasn't healed because she didn't have enough faith. I mean, that's really the prosperity gospel. 
Now, ironically, these are the same pastors that will sit there and tell you that while they have their glasses on with their bad vision that God hasn't apparently healed because they didn't have enough faith. So, get you out of debt, rid you of all your sickness and ailments, give you riches. That's just a nutshell. But there's Prosperity Gospel 2.0. And now, it's all about you. It's all about you. It's very man-centered. It's about bettering yourself, but using Jesus' name to do so. You know, have your dreams come true. Unleash the potential inside you. Live your best life now. It's self-help and self-fulfillment. Um, some of these pastors uh, who preach this have read more Facebook and Instagram posts than they have Bible verses. It's hip, it's brandy, it's cool. It ends up ascribing promises to God that he has never made. And here's the thing. The people that attach to this, they suffer, listen to me, they suffer from chronic discontentment. Chronic discontentment. Anything in your eyes that's not successful, you need to get rid of. That is the message of the 2.0 prosperity gospel. Don't settle for less than God's best for you. Don't settle for less than God's best what? For you. It's all about you. God wants you happy, and he doesn't want you to settle. What ends up happening? Well, people end up getting divorced because of this. Oh, well, I settled for this spouse over here. God wants me happy, and he doesn't want me to settle. It's never about denying yourself. There's no message of the sacrifice of the cross, of the cost of the cross. There's no context for suffering. And guess what? The ordinary is bad. The worst thing in this life is not to reach your potential. Now, every generation has their version of the prosperity gospel. Joel Osteen is kind of the crossover from 1.0 to 2.0. And that's where we talked a little bit last week. There's exegesis, which is where you draw things out of the text. You, you study the Bible and you draw them out. Then there's eisegesis, which is the opposite. You kind of read things into the Bible that aren't there. And then this new term that's been coined is narcissus, right? That's the prosperity gospel. Narcissus. You read yourself into the text. <clears throat> the antidote, friends, for chronic discontentment, which some of you might suffer from, the antidote for chronic discontentment is our subject for today. What's the antidote? Thankfulness. The antidote is thankfulness. Now, already in 1 Thessalonians, which we went through three different times, Paul talks about giving thanks. In fact, one commentator that I read makes the argument that the entire book of 1 Thessalonians is really just like a giant thank you with some different teachings kind of put in there as almost like side notes. But we get similar things in 2 Thessalonians. We've already read verse 3, but also look at chapter 2, verse 13. He says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you. I mean, that's almost the exact same that he says in verse 3 of chapter 1. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Friends, thankfulness is a lost virtue. It's a lost virtue. What have we replaced it with today? Criticism. 
Okay, we've taken thankfulness and taken that off the table, and we put loads and loads and loads and heapings of criticism on the table. Listen, we can always find the negative in anything. It's not that hard to do. Okay? The critic doesn't really that have that hard of a job because you can always find something to criticize. Even when we sometimes compliment people, it's like, oh, great job cleaning up the house, but, right, there's always a but. Or great job on your English paper, but, or great job at work, but. Now, Dale Carnegie, who wrote the well-known book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, he talked about the three C's that you don't do. Criticize, complain, or condemn. And here's what he said. Any fool can criticize, complain, and condemn. And most fools do. But it takes character and self-control to be understanding and forgiving. I uh, <clears throat> do some side jobs sometimes, staining decks and fences. This past week I had a, a, a bigger one than normal. It was 267 uh, linear feet uh, of fence, which is just shy of a football field. And it was both sides that I was doing. So it was really, when you do it, the math that way, it's like 540 uh, linear feet, about 3,000 square feet. 23 gallons of stain. <clears throat> and um, I'm kind of a perfectionist on, on different things, including my work when I'm outside power washing. But I truly believe like it was one of the best jobs I'd ever done. I'm like, dude, this fence looks amazing. <laughs> if I do say so myself. <laughs> but I was like, it was really good, you know? And, um, and I, I, brought, I always bring the customer outside and, you know, check out the work and what do you think? And and I was like, man, I think this fence turned out really great. I'm like, what do you think? And she's like, that's okay. I'm like, really? <laughs> okay, well, just wait a few years when it's your turn to stay in the fence. I'm, I'm going to let you do it. And she's like, and you, it looks like you missed this tiny little spot right there, like 3,000 square feet, right? And what does she focus on, this tiny little spot? Which, I, I mean, I, if, if I missed the spot, I want to get it. I get that. <clears throat> but sometimes, and, and this, you know, this beautiful fence... And we, have a, we can have a beautiful picture in our life or, or the overall picture of, of someone's life and things are going really good, but then what do we do? Oh, that one tiny little spot. That one tiny little spot. I mean, that even happens in marriage when you think about it. Like our, our spouse can be doing 95% excellent job, you know, getting an A, A minus, whatever, but it's that 5% that ends up being the lens through which we view our relationship with them. We focus on that 5%. They can be doing great in all sorts of 50 different categories, but it's that 51st one that we let be the defining thing of our relationship with them and how we view them. That's not biblical. It's wrong, and we need to repent of that. Okay? You will not marry the perfect spouse. I already did. <laughs> but you will not marry the perfect spouse. They're not out there. All right? And the one that was fell in the garden a few thousand years ago, right? Listen, the Thessalonians... Oh, so two things. This is, I'm going to throw some applications at the beginning here. One, stop pointing out the negative so much. Stop pointing out the negative so much. Criticizing people is not a spiritual gift. All right? When, when 
Paul talking in Corinthians, you know, he says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, right? And he goes on, to one is given the Spirit, the utterance of wisdom, and to, to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another, criticism? No, not criticism. It is not a spiritual gift. So stop pointing out the negative, but, but then the flip side is start pointing out the positive. I've, I've never met a person that I thought, wow, they, they are way too positive. Really. I mean, who, who are the people that we normally gravitate to and want to be around? Think about it. The people that are pretty positive about things and are upbeat and are looking at the bright side of things, so to speak. So stop pointing out the negative so much. Start pointing out the positive. Listen, the Thessalonians, if you've read 2 Thessalonians, I mean, it's only three chapters, so you ought to read it at some point in the next few months while we're going through it. Uh, the Thessalonians had their issues. We saw it in 1 Thessalonians, and we're even seeing it here in 2 Thessalonians. You know, Paul, again, he's having to write to them about the Prusia, the coming of Christ. And, uh, and, and at, in chapter 3, he has to write to them about some people were being uh, idle busybodies. So, I mean, they had their issues, right? And he addresses it. But, but is he still thankful for them? And how does he start the letter? With a spirit of thankfulness, thanking them for who they are and what they're doing and how God's using them. So those things did not blind him to how they were spiritually doing overall. And they did not blind him that he couldn't be thankful for the many good things he saw. Did they have difficulties? Yes. But were they growing? Yes. Okay, what do we do? We sometimes let the small overshadow the big. It's back to the marriage. That small little issue, we just magnify it and it becomes the overarching issue of the marriage. Okay, think about um, the Psalms for a minute. You know, there's different types of Psalms. If you've actually studied the Psalms, it's, it's pretty fascinating, actually. Um, the Hebrew poetry that you can study and learn about, it's, it's amazing. Um, but when people study the Psalms, they kind of break it into different categories. There's anywhere from maybe like 5 to 10 but kind of the overarching uh, big ones are there's uh, psalms of praise, psalms of wisdom, psalms of uh, royalness or kingship, psalms of lament. And then the last one is psalms of thanksgiving. Now, now guess how many psalms. There's 150 psalms. Guess about how many of those psalms are psalms of thanksgiving. About 25. So about one, one six. That, that's where they are classified as psalms of thanksgiving now that doesn't mean the other 125 don't talk about thanksgiving in fact they do quite a bit they mention it quite a bit but 25 alone are considered psalms of thanksgiving why is that important well let's look at a few and you're going to see the importance one because in turn to while i'm talking psalm 100 uh, this was the worship book of israel so when we want to know how to worship, we can go to the Psalms and see the appropriate way to worship. How do we approach God to glorify his name? Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving 
and his courts with praise. How are we supposed to enter his gates? What's the, what are the gates for us these days? Like, you know, the, the doors of the church, right? Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. The idea is you're like coming into the temple, and this is how you're supposed to approach entering his gates with, you're not even in the service yet, right? Enter his gates. Enter his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Now here's the thing. We have a a specific set time of what we call worship, right? Usually on Sundays for most people. For us, Sundays at 1030. But then all of our life is supposed to be what? An act of worship, right? And we distinguish the two. But if we're supposed to be, our lives are supposed to be an act of worship, then it would make sense that what we see in the songbook of Israel, we would also want to act out in our daily lives. This attitude of thankfulness. Look at Psalm 111, verse 1. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Now, if you're reading this, like, I mean, you, if you're a believer, you can't help but be thankful. I mean, th- I mean, this makes you thankful. You're seeing about these amazing things. Great are the works of the Lord. Full of splendor and majesty is his work. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. Verse 5, he provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. Aren't you, aren't you thankful that he remembers his covenant forever? I'm thankful for that. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be formed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Amen? So that's what we get in the Psalms. Clearly, over and over, Thanksgiving. Even if it's not a Psalm of Thanksgiving, one of the 25, we get Thanksgiving in these Psalms. That needs to be our heart. Not, not just on Sunday mornings at 1030, definitely. But also when we walk out these doors. Think back to what 1 Thessalonians 5, we covered it a few weeks ago, says, give thanks in all circumstances. You can put it another way, always be thankful. Always be thankful. And notice this, because this is important. Notice that it's not give thanks for all circumstances. Right? But give thanks in all. There's some circumstances I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not glad to be in. I'm not thankful for this circumstance. But I can be thankful in that circumstance. It's, it's the heart, right? The disposition of the heart. So in worship, you know, we just read it. We, we want to have thankful hearts. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Ephesians 5 says, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. I mean, this is how we address one another. I, that's what it says, right? Ephesians 5, addressing one another. So the Psalms 
should lead and guide us, how we communicate with one another, how we talk to one another, how we build one another up. So we want to have thankfulness, I mean, in big things, but also in small things. And let me just say, let's not take others for granted. I mean, once you start to remove thankfulness and that's lacking in your life, I mean, you're taking others for granted. You're missing a thankful heart. It can be uh, a lack of thankfulness for the wife's role. It can be a lack of thankfulness for the husband's role. A lack of thankfulness regarding the kids, even with your adult kids. You know, you might think they're doing 50 things out of 100 wrong. But guess what? They're doing 50 things out of 100 right. (laughs) So focus on those 50, right? I mean, commend. The idea is build up. Look for, look for things that you can commend them for. Now this structure, and we've talked about it with 1 Thessalonians, <clears throat> other ancient letters had you know, Thanksgiving sections, but Paul's were unique in a few ways, and I think they're important to point out. Um, you, you look at ancient letters back then, and they'll talk about different things. Um, Paul's Thanksgivings deal with the spiritual rather than the physical. Okay? He's concerned really about their spiritual well-being. Of course, their physical well-being, but their spiritual well-being. Second, Paul's thanksgivings are, are much longer and, and more complex than anything found in, in the ancient letters. I mean, Second Thessalonians, actually, this first chapter, we'll look at it a little bit later, um, after the first two verses, actually the next ten verses are all part of the Thanksgiving section. We have some, sometimes, depending on your Bible, it kind of gives you some subheadings, right? And it even says, like, Thanksgiving, and then two verses later it probably says something about judgment, which is, I mean, that's a good subheading potentially, but it kind of breaks it up so that you miss the fact that really after the first two, two verses of Second Thessalonians, the next ten are really part of the Thanksgiving section. He's actually talking about many different things regarding Thanksgiving, and, and we can miss that sometimes with our Bibles when they, when they insert their own uh, subheadings that aren't a part of the Scripture. So, I mean, this is a really long Thanksgiving, if you think of some of the others. But, but what's the idea there? Is that, I mean, he's pretty sincere. You, you, get, you get his sincerity in Second Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, I mean, any of the letters, but you can tell that, like, he means what he's writing. It's not just, it's not just fluff. Third, um, all of Paul's letters include a Thanksgiving section, except for one. Uh, but the vast majority of the ancient letters back then, they didn't have the Thanksgiving section, all right? Um, all of his letters, except for one, y'all know which one he doesn't have a Thanksgiving section? Galatians. Galatians. Okay, they were, they were messed up. <laughs> <clears throat> um, but the point is this. This is not just some formulaic intro. Um, he means it, he believes it, and then we see he practices it. So, all of his letters except Galatians have it. Um, but have you, ever, have you ever wondered why? Like, why all the letters? If all the ancient letters back then didn't always have it, like, well, why does Paul include it? I mean, because he's not following some formula is one of the reasons. But two, it's this, it, that, that's just who he was. It's the spirit in which he walked. Like, the spirit was filling him, and it just came out of him. And that's what you see, him walking in the fruit of the Spirit, and, and what's on the inside spills out, right? What's on the inside spills out. We can try to, if, if, we're, if we're not walking with the Spirit, we can try to keep it clamped down, it's going to spill out. But if we're filled with, with the Spirit, then what are we going to be seeing? The fruit of the Spirit. 
love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's what we'll be seeing. Well, that's how he walked. That's who he was. So for him, it's not just some random part of a letter. It's who he is. Now, you might be wondering, man, we've been talking a lot about Thanksgiving over the past year or so. Pastor Bond sure mentions this a lot. Listen, it's honestly one of the advantages of of working through a, a book because if we're working through a text and it keeps mentioning it, guess what do I need to do? I need to keep mentioning it. I mean, right? So you could have like a little short sermon series on Thanksgiving, and that's great and, and perfect, and there's some good ones out there, and that's like three weeks. But if you're, you know, every few weeks, if you're being hit with the Thanksgiving again because you're working through the text of the Scripture, we start to get a better flavor of how Paul was addressing the Thessalonians and how God wants to address us. He wants this to be continually before us, an attitude of Thanksgiving. So what we're seeing as we work through 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, is that the Word talks about it a whole lot. It's not a little verse here and a little verse there. No, it's spread throughout the Scriptures repeatedly. And we need to sit up and take note. It's the disposition that God wants us to have. So think about this for a moment, though. Where is this Thanksgiving directed First and foremost, to God. And now you're like, oh, duh. But, I mean, think about this. Look back at 2 Thessalonians. Who's he thanking in verse 3? We ought always to give thanks to God. That's where the thanks is oriented. So he's, he's not thanking the Thessalonians, not at this point. He's thanking God for the Thessalonians. Okay, so here's the thing. We always, 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 always start with thanksgiving to God. We would call that being theocentric, okay? God-centered. First and foremost, we are thankful to God. We start here. This sets the framework for our entire lives. Thankful to God first, and then thankful to others, because the framework has been set. God always comes first in all things, including this one. So this is the tone for all of chapter 1. Uh, 18 times in chapter 1, there's a reference to the Father or to Jesus. So over and over again, in, in this Thanksgiving section, what are we seeing? It's God, it's God, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's God, it's God. Over and over, God is at the center of everything, and he's the one doing it. He's the one orchestrating it. He is in charge. So this theocentric, these parallels, um, it kind of accents the parallels that the same theological perspective that we saw in 1 Thessalonians. Think about it for a minute. 1 Thessalonians, what are they commended for? One, their faith, love, and hope. Chapter 1, verse 3. Their exemplary life in the midst of persecution. Chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. Their evangelistic activity. Chapter 1, verse 8. Their conversion. Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. And even though Paul and his fellow missionaries planted the church and loved the church, guess what? All of those things I just mentioned that happened in the church are ultimately due to God's work of election. Verse 4, look at 1 Thessalonians. I just want you to see it. 
Okay, verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. That he's chosen you. And it's the same in 2 Thessalonians. So in first, uh, who does the thanks go to? It's God. Why? Because he's the one that's doing it. He's working through them, but he's the one that starts it, and he's the one that continues it. It's the same thing in 2 Thessalonians. Okay? Even though the church is commended for the abundant increase of their faith, such that Paul's boasting, to them, uh, boasting about them to other churches, as we see in verse 4, all this remarkable spiritual growth is ultimately due to God's activity in their lives. You, you don't got God, you don't have any of this happening. You need God and his work and his son given us his grace and mercy. And so God is the one to whom thanksgiving must be given. Okay? The rest of this thanksgiving section highlights the primary role that God plays in the salvation of these Thessalonians and, by extension, us. So we read verse 3 and 4, but then look at verse 5 in 2 Thessalonians 1. This is evidence. Well, what's the evidence? And we're going to look at this in future weeks, but the this, you've got to say, what's the this talking about? Well, the this, this points back to that. <laughs> All right? It's pointing back to verse 4, but this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Now we're going to find out about what God's doing here. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you were also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. I mean, this is all God, right? This is the activity of God. And Paul's thankful for it. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the, from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. That day's coming, friends. And to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. That's really like the, the subsection two of the thanksgiving. It's this little thing about, hey, God's going to take care of you. He's going to take care of you. He will take care of you. Then it goes to the third section. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So verses 5 through 10 stress God's role in vindicating the believers and punishing their enemies. They'll be vindicated. Not because of any righteousness on their own, but because of who Christ is. And then verses 11 and 12 give a report of prayer directed to God to make the readers worthy of his calling. Okay, So this second thanksgiving is located in the body of the letter right at the beginning, and then we get even a thanksgiving, like a third, or excuse me, a second section of the thanksgiving all the way in verse 13 of chapter 2, which really echoes everything we just read. Look at verse 13 in chapter 2. For we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you. Oh, there it is again. God chose you. 
God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. I mean, do you see each member of the Trinity mentioned in that verse, right? Always to give thanks to God, brothers beloved by the Lord, the Lord Jesus, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. Each person of the Trinity is at work in us. And then he goes on, verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so he, he chose you. That's mentioned in 1 Thessalonians. It's mentioned here. He chose you and he called you. That's, that's why we were called, right? But we have a calling, but we are called by God to trust in him. So if you wanted to break up these, these sections of the thanksgiving, the, the first section is, is like he commends them, right? He's thanking God and he's commending, hey man, God's doing some great stuff in your life. It's amazing, awesome. But then he comforts them. That's the second part of the thanksgiving. Hey, it's tough, it's rough. You're being persecuted, you're being afflicted. But guess what? God still has this. And he's going to take care of it and he will reward the righteous and punish the wicked He's going to do that. And then, he, and, and then the last two verses, 11 and 12, are, are really more like a challenge. He's, he's complimenting you. To this end, we always pray for you. But then he says that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Again, by his power, right? So it's God doing the work, but it's a little bit of a challenge that he's given them that God, hey, the work that God began, right? I'm praying he continues it. I'm praying that he keeps it up in you. Are you going to let him do that? Are you going to continue to walk? Are you going to continue to seek after him? Are you going to continue to walk in the path of righteousness? And what are each of these things? The the commendation, the comfort, and the challenge, what are these grounded in? The thanksgiving to God. So, brothers and sisters, let us put our hearts where they belong before the throne of God. Let us put our hearts before God so that he can mold and shape us in this area. That thankfulness is a disposition that we have. That we are rid of the criticalness, rid of the condemnation, rid of the complaining, like the three C's, and then filled with thankfulness. You want to get rid of the discontentment that you have in your life? Start with thankfulness. That's why, I mean, we get things. It's amazing if we follow the scriptures, how God blesses us and walks with us and helps us work through different things in our life that we struggle with. That's why Colossians talks about, like, set your heart on things above. If you're discontent, you're probably not setting your heart on things above. But it says set your heart on things above. Why? Because that's where Christ is. Seated. We get this picture. He's seated at the right hand of God. So we're setting our hearts ultimately on Christ, on who he is, on what he's done for us, on his love for us. That should bring contentment. And guess what? If you let that truth seek in, it will. It will. And anyone who's ever had more than just a little bit of money 
and kind of splurged on themselves and, and maybe bought this thing that they really wanted or that thing that they really wanted, they know that maybe that gave them some happiness for a season, but it really didn't last. You know, you got the, whatever, the new iPhone or the new truck or, I don't know, the new house. Like, those things, that newness kind of wears off. And the contentment that maybe that supposedly brought, that, that usually wears off pretty quick, unfortunately. <laughs> but we have a true contentment from Christ that will never wear away. It won't. And we can only find true contentment in him. I mean, that's why even believers, sadly, I mean, we seek different idols in our lives to try to find the contentment. And we have all these false idols that we're willing to set up as we're trying to find contentment. Believers, sadly. And, and we, we, we kind of like, you know, criticize, oh, there's that C word, but we criticize the Israelites in the Old Testament for being such fools for having God right before them, and yet they complain, yet here, what do we do? I mean, we complain. We're very much like them. The difference is, I mean, we, we have their examples of what not to do, and yet we still do it. We criticize, we condemn, we complain. That is not from God. It's not from God. So we want to walk in a spirit of thankfulness. Friends, if we don't have God, we are restless. We are restless without him. And we are tossed about without him. But with him, we have a steadiness and assured hope. With him, we can stand on the rock that's Christ. With him, we can stand firm and not be shaken. Think about what 2 Corinthians talks about. Turn there briefly. Some of you need to hear this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So we're the jars of clay, right? And we got some cracks in us, that's for sure. But why is the treasure in jars of clay? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Because if, if it's about your power or my power, man, th that's hopeless. But if it's about the power that God has, I got a lot of hope. And I can press on and I can persevere and I can have steadfastness. Why? Because ultimately, it's not about my power. It's about his power. So our strength comes from him. The power is his that he gives to us. Look, look what it goes on. So he, this is the setting. We have the treasure in jars of clay, right? I mean, you drop a, a clay jar, it's just going to shatter, right? It's going to break. So we're the jars of clay. Easily broken. But then it, it so that, that's the backdrop. You know, we got the picture of us, the jars of clay. The picture of God, power. Right? Jars of clay, power. But then he goes on here. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. 
And why is that? Why are we afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed? Because we have the surpassing power, not of ourselves, but of God. That's what we have, the surpassing power of God. Yes, it's in a weak vessel. It's in the jar of clay, but it's from him that he gives us to us so that we can be in these situations where we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. And we can be perplexed, but not driven to despair. And persecuted, and friends, it's coming more and more, persecuted, but not forsaken. And we can even be struck down, but not destroyed. And what does he say? Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Friends, this is our great God. He's amazing and he's powerful. And he is not going to let these things happen. He won't let you be crushed. He won't let you be driven to despair. He won't let you be forsaken. He won't let you be destroyed. Those are promises. And some of you need to grab hold of them and believe them. Those are promises from God himself. Look what he continues to go on and say. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Death is at work in us, but life in you. Let's let the life work in us. Okay? Not the bios. That's that's the, the word we get biology from, physical life but the zoe, the eternal life. We have true, eternal, spiritual life in us. Friends, if you have that, then you've got a spot reserved in heaven. If you have the eternal life, then, then God has you, and he's yours. He's your God, and you are his. Man, what a privilege. What a privilege to have that. And when we're there, that's why I say, without that, we're restless. Without that, we're tossed about. But with God, with what he supplies us with abundantly, over and over, endlessly, we can be steady and assured of hope. Why? Because he's right there with us every step of the way. So whatever might come our way, he won't let those things happen, the crushed, driven to despair, the forsaken, the destroyed. He will be with us to the end. So we can walk in thankfulness with him at our side. We can have thankful hearts even if we are afflicted in every way. We can have thankful hearts even if we're perplexed. We can have thankful hearts even if we're persecuted. We can have thankful hearts even if we're struck down. Thankful in all circumstances. So we can have thankful hearts focused on him and glorifying his name with God himself at our side. Let's pray. Lord, give us a spirit of thankfulness to wash over us now. God, let's just pause a moment so we can ask for forgiveness for not having thankful hearts and for criticizing and condemning and complaining way too much. Forgive us, Lord, for that. Lord, we, we repent of that and we turn away from it. We turn away from the criticizing. We turn away from the condemning. We turn away from the complaining. That's not from you. 
It's not from your spirit. And we turn to you, God, and when we turn there, we see, we see you for who you are. We see that you are quick to forgive, you are slow to anger, you're abounding in steadfast love. We see you, the amazing God. And we can only but be thankful. That's the proper response. That's the right response. And, and that really, when we see you, Lord, is, is the only response. So thank you, Father. Thank you, God, that you're with us in all circumstances. You're with us wherever we're at in the darkness and in the light, in the sin and in the righteousness, you're with us, God. You still love us regardless of where we're at. So I pray for each one of us, Lord. Man, take our hearts of stone, God, and give us hearts of thankfulness. Continue to regenerate our hearts. Continue to mold and fashion them. And really, I'm, I'm praying to do that for us. Like, our, the entirety of who we are. We're supposed to love you with our heart, soul, mind, strength, with all that we are, to fill us with thankfulness from top to bottom, to walk in that spirit, to love you rightly. Thank you, Father. Amen.